Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Today on the program, how quickly will coastal cities have to move when sea levels rise? We'll have a talk with Tiffany Wise West, the Climate Action Coordinator for the coastal city of Santa Cruz, California. She'll update us on the city's plans for adapting or protecting against the worst effect of storms, floods, and other scenarios predicted to hit coastal areas in the next few decades. Plus, science notes and phenomenon. Stay tuned for Planet Watch coming up next. And we have a short news roundup to share with you, as we always do, before we get into a conversation with our guest. And our intern, Tommy's here to share one with us now. Tommy, what do you got? Hi, everybody. Um, while, our, um, while our president claims he wants to bring back coal and works to halt Obama-era greenhouse gas regulations, the Chilean government is paying attention to the falling cost of solar and is taking advantage of it. Last year, Chile invited utility companies to bid on public contracts and on the solar industry uh, dominated the auction. With vast stretches of some of the most powerful sun on Earth and cheaper photovoltaic panels, the solar producers were able to offer energy at just half the cost of coal producers. Uh, since 2014, Chile's solar energy production has increased sixfold, and uh, last year, Bloomberg ranked them number two energy producer in the world, just behind China. Uh, Chile hopes the huge expansion of renewables will allow them to escape their long-standing uh, dependence on energy imports <laughs> as they, sorry, <laughs> as they envision their country becoming a solar Saudi Arabia. Um, Chile has set a goal of 60% energy, or 60% clean energy by 2035. That's an ambitious goal, and as we, as he said, it's a number two clean energy producer in the world, not just energy producer. So a slight correction on that. Sorry. I don't think I'm on. Am I on? Okay, it sounds like I'm on now. I have a little comment on that one because I've been down there in the Atacama Desert of Chile, which uh, I was with NASA. We were studying it as the closest thing on Earth to Mars. I mean, it's super dry. There are places there that have not received any rain for decades. And so there are places where there is no life at all, not even microbes, at least on the surface. You dig down and you can find some water or damp areas way down where then you get into some life. But it's pretty interesting. And uh, I remember seeing um, a copper train. You know, Chile is famous for copper. It was a whole train with flat cars loaded with big slabs of copper. And, of course, uh, there's a fantastic movie about a near disaster that happened a few years ago called The 33. It was about 33 copper miners that were trapped for some amazingly long period of time, like months, underground, deep underground, and they survived. And it, I highly recommend that movie. It's totally amazing. So. All right. Uh, so another item. Last Tuesday, President Trump signed an executive order surrounded by coal miners and fossil fuel executives instructing EPA head Scott Pruitt to begin dismantling the clean power plan. Negotiated under the Obama administration's EPA, the plan put strict limits on carbon emissions from power plants. The plan was an essential step in moving toward achieving the Paris Agreement, goal of reducing national greenhouse gas emissions 27 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Despite the rollback, many states, environmental groups, and companies are fighting back. Some states are armed with teams of lawyers who will argue that the federal government must act based on a 2007 U.S. Supreme Court decision classifying CO2 as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Even former ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson, who is now the State Department head, has recommended complying with the goals set by the Paris Agreement. And so time will tell whether all of the snaggles in court uh, prevent the rollback or simply just stall everything in the courts. You're listening to Planet Watch, and we appreciate you being on board today. We are broadcasting both on local station KSO, but we're also on several other stations around the country, including Columbus, Ohio. And we are on the web on Facebook at Planet Watch Radio, so go check us out there. We'll be streaming our video and putting up a couple of uh, slides and charts about sea level rise. And by the way, you can email us to interact with us live during the show or between shows at Radio Planet Watch, all one word, Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com. 
So we uh, monitor our, got Tommy there furiously monitoring the computer for messages that come in and we can uh, respond to questions or comments or insults or whatever you feel like doing today. No um, insults, please. Okay, <laughs> Very well. thin-skinned here. <laughs> All right. So one of the things we were talking about in the intro was sea level rise. And anyone who even, if you don't live at the coast, but if you do live anywhere along the coastline of any of the United States or even another country, you, your first question is probably, how do I know when to move? And how fast is the sea going to rise? And with their storms getting worse, um, what should I be doing and thinking about in the 10-year, 20-year, and maybe 50-year um, window that may be looking ahead? And I'm sure, you know, if you're a homeowner on the coast, you think one way. If you have a business, for example, an amusement park right on the beach, you're probably <laughs> thinking about this. And even if you don't live in one of the states like Florida, California, Louisiana, that are really at the top of the list to lose property in the next 50 years, you're still probably wondering, what happens if I want to go vacation at the beach? So here to, to talk about that from the heart of one of the big tourist coastal cities in the United States, often voted the best one to go to for the beach, um, is Tiffany Wise West, who is the Climate Action Coordinator for the City of Santa Cruz. And she is a licensed professional civil engineer and lead associate professional specializing in developing and managing public-private academic partnerships aimed at advancing green infrastructure policy and programming. So that's a great resume to be talking about how do you plan ahead for things that are really scenarios and their ranges of possible sea level rise and storm increases. They are based on very sophisticated climate models. But they're still not absolutely known. That's because we've never been able to predict exactly what's going to happen in the future, especially when it comes to climate and weather. So asking you as a startup question, what are you looking at and how do we know what we know? And then we'll get into the most important question most people listening probably have is, when do we have to move? <laughs> what do we do? So we'll get into that for the majority of our conversation. But let's start by what are you used and, and what are the scenarios you look at to figure sure. this out? And thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you both for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So at the city of Santa Cruz, we started looking at climate adaptation in earnest uh, in 2011 and developed the city's first climate adaptation plan, which had been completed in conjunction with the local hazard mitigation plan. And at that time, the science and modeling wasn't as far along as it is now. So in that plan, our estimation of risks and what we should do about them were very qualitative in nature. Now we've just embarked, uh, starting this year, our update to that first climate adaptation plan and the local hazard mitigation plan. And there is, uh, it's a different world out there. There are new data sets and models available, uh, particularly here in California, that we will be utilizing uh, to project the impacts of sea level rise. Primarily, uh, the modeling does um, look at coastal uh, impacts. Um, we are, of course, addressing other impacts like um, potential for wildfire, um, drought, that kind of thing. Um, but our modeling and the quantification is really looking at coastal impacts such as flooding, increased storms, erosion. And we are looking at three different time horizons. Um, we are looking at 2030, 2060, and 2100. Right now, we're still very early in the process. We're doing data collection to ensure that the infrastructure on the coast is represented properly in the model. Um, we are um, working to get coastal revetment um, into the model, which previously had not been. I have to ask some terminology. Of Let's course. Go three <laughs> words you said, which okay. everyone might not know what they mean. Great. Adaptation, mitigation, and what was the last one? Revetment. Revetment. Revetment, yeah. <laughs> so mitigation, and typically in the climate sense, is reducing emissions. However, when I'm talking about adaptation, which is adapting to the impacts of climate change, um, and we use the word mitigation or mitigation strategies, that means what can we do to lessen the impact of those 
things like erosion and so forth. Um, so it, it can be a little bit confusing. And one of those mitigation strategies could be revetment, also known as coastal armoring. We've seen um, right out here on East Cliff, um, the uh, seawall that's gone up um, maybe three, four years ago. That's an example of coastal revetment. Um, also at the harbor, when you see the the big concrete jacks, the riprap, that could be also be considered uh, revetment um, and a mitigation strategy. What does it mean? What do you call it when you sell your house or put it on stilts? <laughs> Get the heck out of the way. Get out of Dodge. That would be retreat. <laughs> so there's planned retreat and flee, run foo, as they call it. Like they specialize in the defensive martial arts of running. Um, you, you remember, you know, what happened during Katrina when the levees failed or what happened during Sandy, that was not planned anything. It was simply a disaster. So everything you're talking about is planning ahead or attempting to. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, it can, these mitigation strategies that I mentioned, they can um, be hard infrastructure like seawalls or revetment, but they can also include things like, hey, we know where the flooding's going to be. Let's send mailers out to those folks. Let them know what the potential impact could be. Maybe they need to have instructions on where to park their car when they're, they get a notification of flooding. So it can be other type of, types of strategies also to lessen the impact. That's what the county does. They do send out uh, mailers. That's something the city is considering as one of our mitigation strategies right now. So let's talk about scenarios. You have three different years <coughs> that you're looking at ahead. Yes. What's the sea level rise in each of those decadal demarcations that you're looking at? You know, I can't answer that question right now. Unfortunately, we're right at the beginning of the process. So I don't know the answer to that, um, but I will in a couple months. And I'd love to update you guys when, um, when we get a little further along in the process. Um, frankly, I'm not... I, I hesitate to even give um, a level. Um, I don't want to cause any alarm, but we do know that our biggest um, issues are erosion and flooding, storm and storm-induced flooding, um, and uh, so that's what we're really uh, carefully taking a look at right now through this uh, new modeling that we're uh, doing. Yeah, you know, we had Gary Griggs on our very first show back in mid-January, and of course he. You, you probably work with him, have been working with him on this sea level rise and coastal erosion issue. And uh, he gave us a figure. And, well, one might be reluctant to quote it just because it sounds trivial. It was like 3.3 millimeters a year on the average these days of sea level rise. And uh, as he put it, that's about the thickness of two quarters, you know, like quarters in your pocket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, but then you multiply by X number of years and also the fact that he told us that uh, this figure is rising. <laughs> the figure, the sea level rise rates are rising. So uh, it, it adds up to become significant. And also keep in mind that a vertical rise in sea level translates on a nearly horizontal shore to vast incursions inland. That's the point. So, uh, in other words, just the geometry of it, you know, draw a long, thin triangle with the hypotenuse being a gradual slope, and you have a little tiny leg vertical, but that translates into a long, horizontal uh, beachfront property all of a sudden, <laughs> quite a ways inland. Absolutely. Uh, Gary Griggs and Brent Haddad from UCSC actually... Uh, conducted our first vulnerability assessment that was done in 2011 along with the climate adaptation plan and we're really fortunate this time around Gary wasn't available to help us with that but we have his recent um, grad student just finished finished his PhD two weeks ago uh, Dr. Giuliano Khalil is helping us with a unique aspect that we didn't do in the past but this time we are looking at social vulnerability and trying to assign maybe not quite a social vulnerability index, but look in a geospatial kind of way at overlapping where are those inundation zones, where do they coincide with perhaps low income, crime, uh, different uh, ethnicities and language languages being spoken. And that can really help us to guide those mitigation strategies like the example I used with, um, you know, 
providing perhaps Spanish language instructions on, hey, when you get this notification about flooding, you should park your car somewhere else. So um, we're really, I'm, we're again, right at the beginning stage of developing the methodology and the data sets that we're utilizing for this. It's something I'm very excited about and um, really interested in getting out into the community and talking about once we get a little further along. You know, you know a question I'm dying to ask, uh, you talked about crime a second ago, and of course, Miami Vice. I'm glad we don't have a TV show named Santa Cruz Vice. But anyway, <laughs> Miami, um, what are they, they've got, they're trying to raise up streets or something, right? I mean, what are they doing there? They've got f streets being flooded now almost every high tide. What, here, are you saying in Miami, Miami? In Miami. Miami. So what are they doing and what relevance does that have to what we might be facing? You know, I, Joe, that's a great question. I have to admit um, that the adaptation work is fairly new to me. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in this area. Um, I really have had to get up to speed quickly the past few months since we've started this project. Um, but it's been really interesting because it kind of pulls at the engineering, the scientific, the social aspects that I'm really interested in. I, I wish we had um, Giuliano here to talk to us because he just finished a study um, on that very issue in Florida. You're not Florida. talking about Rudy Giuliano, are <laughs> no, you? No, 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 no. <laughs> don't think he's Dr. Giuliano. Oh, Giuliano. No, Giuliano uh, Khalil. Right, right, right. He, he's, he's a former grad student of Gary Grace, but he just finished a study uh, in Florida on that very issue. Um, he's also working uh, in uh, L.A. right now on, on similar issues, but I don't know the answer to that um, right well, now. Stay tuned. Stay Stay tuned. <laughs> I did want to point folks to our Facebook page because I just published or, or posted uh, a link to Climate Central, which has some reporting on um, sea level rise. And, you know, they're saying with our 2% target um, in the past with those temperatures, if we're trying to not go 2% more than we are, um, they could have as much as 20 feet uh, in the next 100 years if the ice sheets melt. So, you know, we don't know, but the ranges are from three to 20 feet, and, and it really depends on whether things get a feedback loop going fast or not. When you go to places, you know, that are under sea level, like New Orleans, or even <clears throat> on some of the Hawaiian islands where they have a lot of hurricanes, you see houses up on stilts. Could planning commissions just say no more building and we have to raise all the buildings up or we have to move? I mean, is that going to be um, a strategy to be really honest with people because otherwise it's the insurance companies and the public that ends up bearing the brunt of the cost of people not responding to the changes. Sure, sure. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, the Coastal Commission, um, they dictate um, development in the coastal area. The city does have what's called a, a local coastal plan, um, which is currently in the process of being updated. And by spelling out how the city um, will develop uh, in the coastal zone and when it aligns with the Coastal Commission, the city can do the coastal development permits themselves. And I think that the Coastal Commission is really going to uh, drive the types of mitigation measures that um, in the future will be necessary and... Um, you know, they set the policy, the state sets the policy on that. I don't know out of this round of our adaptation update that the types of measures that you suggested, putting, you know, uh, buildings up on stilts or, you know, uh, preventing uh, building in certain areas. I don't think that that's going to necessarily come out of this round. Um, those are also political um decisions oftentimes um, that hopefully are informed by good robust science um, but you are correct that those are the types of strategies that are used all over the coast in the U.S. Um, what it remains to be seen what we will what we'll come up with um, you know I, I think that things the mitigation strategies that were um, identified in 2012 Many of them we've undertaken, some of them we have, have not. There are also new ones to consider now with things like coastal restoration, dune restoration, that science evolving. So um, I certainly can't say that uh, raising uh, homes is necessarily going to, to be one of them, but it's um, you know on the table in the f as far as the full suite of mitigation strategies. And what's funny about radio is you know the word raising buildings could sound just like 
tearing them down. R A Z I N. That's true. That's so true. So we're talking about with an S, not a yes. Z. Elevating. I S, yeah. <laughs> yes, with <laughs> You know, and th- let's talk for a moment about just the politics of saying, hi, Boardwalk, you know, we're not going to um, replace you if you get flooded. Um, or your insurance won't cover you anymore. And that's the, where does it get spread to the rest of the people not on the very edge? Who paid, we were driving by a very probably multi-million dollar home on the way here. And there were all these boulders right in front of it on the sea cliff. And I thought, did they privately pay for those or did we all armor the coast so their billion dollar house doesn't fall into the ocean? And up to a certain point, is it really up to the rest of us to pay for those who would like to blatantly ignore the fact that their house is going to fall into the ocean no matter what we pay to do? And, and how do you Oh, yeah, t- and then we have to people. bail them out, literally. <laughs> literally. And, and so at a certain point, and, you know, this happened during Katrina, where do you start to say, let's not rebuild the entire city in the under sea level area. Let's learn from this uh, what we could do to learn the lesson of nature rather than <laughs> politics. Hey, I know you, I'm not expecting an answer sure, from you because I know it's, it's a, a sensitive It's a subject. sensitive topic, definitely. And again, I point to the Coastal Commission. I think that they're really going to drive um, what happens here as we see these local coastal plans being updated throughout the state. Um, I think that's really going to, to drive that. But as we continue to see, you know, the East Coast, they're they're getting storms all the time they're having to rebuild some of it is climate and do you know uh related to climate change some of it's not ours is more slow here we have the flooding and storms less frequently it seems like erosion is slower so it's uh it almost requires a a paradigm shift in the way that we think about coastal development and you raise you know the issues who who pays for it when is retreat really the only option that kind of thing they're big questions and they're sensitive topics for certain people aren't used to planning ahead that far i'm just (laughs) thinking you know the short-term profit if you're going to flip a house you're going to sell it and then you know the next person's problem that that is what's supposed to make us unique as humans you know the forebrain part of our anatomy is supposed to be the one that deals with long-range planning uh hey you know um uh, Jason's been doing a great job of showing us various uh, things relevant to what we're discussing. But maybe, Jason, you could, uh, our engineer, you could put that um, webcam of the ocean right outside our door here again while we're talking about sea level rise. And uh, there, look at that. That's what's going on right now, a few meters from where we're doing this An show. A- absolutely beautiful <laughs> beach day. You know, the ocean looks so benign and beautiful on a day like this. And when you're here, on a big storm, or you were here during our three-foot three tsunami, which <laughs> caused $4 million of more mm. of damage to our yacht harbor and to the one in Arcata, you realize a little teeny sea level rise is a lot. Was it <laughs> Arcata? Right. I think it was Crescent, Crescent City, City, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, farther north still. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, one other thing that I wanted to mention uh, with respect to the, just having this conversation is is getting the public more involved. And, um, you know, part of my job is conducting outreach. And so I wanted to give just a brief plug, if that's okay, for we have here in the city of Santa Cruz right now uh, a survey on our existing climate adaptation plan and local mitigation, uh, hazard mitigation plan. So if you go to uh, the Climate Action Program's Facebook page, so that's City of Santa Cruz Climate Action Program Facebook page, you can find an English and Spanish language um, version of the survey, uh, links to the survey from that page. And we really encourage folks to respond and let us know what impacts are you experiencing? What are you doing? What's your level of preparedness? Um, What can the city do? Uh, That kind of thing. And that will be, those will be important inputs to these updates. So thank you for the opportunity to. Well, in fact, you bring up something I was going to ask you anyway, which is we're going to move on to some other topics that are actually relevant to the whole country and the whole world, not just coastal areas like energy infrastructure. But uh, I was wondering, how can people here get a hold of you about anything they care about that's climate related? (laughs) And first of all, you work, which department of our town do you work in? It's not public works. It's not planning anymore. It's the city manager's office. The city manager's office. Yeah, you told me that the other day. I forgot. But anyway. No worries. So, so, So they should just... They can call the city's manager's office and say. Sure, we have a climate action program webpage on the city's main um, website, which is being um, 
updated this year quite a bit. Um, my contact information is there. Folks can email me. I'm happy uh, to meet with folks and talk about these issues and other, you know, are also our big focus is is. Uh, reducing carbon emissions, obviously. That's a, another big uh, component. Um, we also, you know, I encourage people to keep an eye on the uh, agendas for planning commission and city council. We're often uh, on the agenda. Um, next month, of course, is um, Earth Day will be next month. And Traditionally, uh, we the Climate Action Coordinator gives the uh, annual state of the program, uh, what our progress is towards our goals. So mm. next month that will be happening. I'm preparing that update right now for uh, the Planning Commission and City Council. So some of your local mm. um, listeners may be interested yeah, in what, that. Yeah, what date is that? That is on... Uh, I mean, Earth Day is always on the 22nd, but this year yes. it falls on a Saturday, which isn't a work day for you. That's so. right. <laughs> so um, City Council, I will be there on Tuesday, April 25th, and I will be at the Planning Commission on, I believe it's Thursday, April 20th. Oh, that's 420. Hmm. And for well, those of you not living anywhere near us here in Santa Cruz, um, you can always beam in. It's very entertaining if you watch on um, the local cable channel streaming. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to know how to get a hold of our guest or us or anything related to this show, again, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Tommy, has that... Oh, he's, he's raising his question. hand. Yeah, yeah you want to just read something for us Yeah, there? Susan sent us a question. Um, Susan, okay, whoever that is. My, right. Thank you, Susan. My mother still lives in the beach house in Malibu, where I lived as a kid. I used to enjoy watching the tide go out and plan my daily walks accordingly. She mentioned to me that she hasn't been on a walk in months because there hasn't been a low tide. Yikes! <laughs> um, will the rise in tide go up and down over a period of time, or will it be constant upward trend? I'm asking because after the four months or so, the high tide did recede, and she's taken walks again. Um, I think she is in denial about the rising sea level. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I have to say I'm, I'm not an oceanographer, and I don't really know about those types of patterns. I think we can generally assume, though, we are going to see an increase in sea level rise. How those dynamics work with tides, I don't know, but, um, you know, I don't know how that also translates into the quality of her walks, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you said she said that there hasn't been a low tide in a long time. I mean, there's low and high tides every day. It's just that the low tides are getting higher, just like well, the high tides are. I wonder also, maybe the beach, had the, the sand has um, been washed away. I mean, that does right. happen. Oh, yeah, seasonally off. you lose the whole beach sometimes. Right, right. So maybe it was just that. It but, could be that, right, yeah. and the sand rebuilt. I'm not sure what's going on down yeah. there in Malibu. Yeah, and if, you know, you see just right here in Capitola, the beach was washed away up to f within five feet of the seawall. Yeah, that's and a huge problem for them. It, right, it, but it just got it built back it, it, within a matter of weeks, which was... My husband and I are walking down there. It's very surprising when we noticed that. Yeah. So, so folks who are in the inland parts of this country and elsewhere, you, you can vicariously enjoy through this discussion <laughs> our uh, pleasures and perils by the seashore. <laughs> yes. So um, and you can think about the fact that although, um, you know, those people on the coast, you know, should have known all moving to the coast, you know, this huge number of people moved to all the coasts in the past 30 years, this huge migration the population just surged. People want to look at this beautiful water. Um, people in the Midwest, they get big, more intense storms and higher heat waves and things like that. So they have their own um, issues. Absolutely. And if they want to get away to the beach to go on vacation, you know, if the sea levels rise fast enough, there won't be beaches, there'll be cliffs in the ocean. It will be quite a different experience than it is now where we have beaches. So. That's what Gary Griggs told us. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind, kind of amazing to just um, my, since working on this adaptation plan update project with our public works department, I had no idea what really goes into nourishing the beach. That's the term that's used, beach nourishment. And the types of, um, you know, some of the mitigation strategies that are used to retain sand and the beach and, and mi minimize that movement, I had no idea. Yeah, that people actually mine sand from underneath the ocean and blast it onto the beach. They were doing that in Belize for some of the keys, which are very fragile little strips of coral, basically, with a little bit of sand on top. Mm -hmm. So in order to have any beach at all, they're um, creating beaches with a lot of energy, ironically, I'm used sure. fossil fuels to pump sand out from underneath mm. the ocean onto the beach. Hey, you know, two thoughts related to all this that I wanted to get in before we switch over to something else. Um, 
the insurance companies have actually turned out to be some of our biggest allies in the fight for the public consciousness on whether climate change, human-caused climate change is real. I mean, they have a, a real stake in it, like a trillion-dollar stake in it. You know, they, they, they are responsible financially for a lot of these properties uh, that are really threatened. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, strange bedfellows. <laughs> uh, the other one is that uh, there's all this so-called debate about whether temperatures, global average temperatures, have really been rising steadily and was there a pause and blah, blah, blah. And even that is, is really bogus. But here's something that nobody can refute, and that is that sea level rises are inexorably rising. There is nothing that even remotely resembles a pause in that. So I challenge anybody who's going to claim that oh, global warming's fake because temperatures aren't really rising steadily. Well, what about, aside from the fact that that's bogus anyway, what about the sea level rise, which is just, you know, it's going to be thousands of years of rising seas, I'm afraid. That's baked in no matter what we do, unless we magically discover an amazing way to pull massive amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere really soon. And I hope we can, and I'm game for working on that and getting a whole lot of people to work on that, and it'll be interesting. But, um, you know, <laughs> better plan for the worst while we're at it. So well, That seems like a hard thing to do. I mean, you just raised a really interesting issue. The, the money involved in not doing anything is also quite high because the cost of moving, for example, looking at this map, that is on the climate page, um, and I just posted it on Facebook. I gave, uh, did a screenshot. Two degrees Celsius warming and sea level rise shows um, the entire downtown Santa Cruz underwater. So, and no beaches, and all of the river valleys pretty much, you know, mm. evacuated up to a certain elevation. Mm. So, if you're living, <clears throat> I mean, sorry, she said two degrees Celsius. That's Celsius. almost four degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, which so, is about half the difference between now and an ice age when you're talking global average. Right. So up on Ocean View Terrace all the way to Center Street would be underwater as would um, the entire beach flats, you know, the entire boardwalk and all the way up to right below Mission Street. Mission Street would be above water. So really what this is saying if it's true is that you have to move town up to Mission Street or above on the next marine terrace. And uh, how are you going to tell all the people living downtown and having the businesses? That is the heart of our downtown. <laughs> and I'm sure we're not alone because rivers are the perfect place to build a town, except when it floods. This is <laughs> Tiffany's job. <laughs> I just want to be, yeah, I just want to be clear also that the data, the model that you're looking at is not what we're using for our model. So I just didn't want to make any false inferences that those um, studies were connected. Um, I don't want to, you know, make any specific claims about where um, flooding is going to occur before the science is done. So I just want to make that clear. That's fine. And remind <laughs> yeah. us again um, in the last, we just have about five more minutes of this interview. Sure. Remind us when that data is going to be all crunched and available to the public. Yes, it will be finished in July, August. We will be presenting to our Transportation and Public Works Commission, Planning Commission and City Council in August. August. So everything will be wrapped up in the next few months. It's a very quick timeline for us, but um, we're on good pace uh, to finish. We have a great team assembled um, within the city that represents all the departments, um, and we have great scientific advisors on board as well. We got connected uh, through the uh, American Geophysicists Union, which we feel really great about um, getting their advice as well. So mm. it's been a really good process and I'm looking forward to finishing it up and sharing it with the public. Um, you know, Ross Clark, who was my predecessor in, in my role, is now doing all of this science for the Central Coast Wetlands Group. He just finished a similar study for Capitola, and he's done a broad one for the unincorporated areas of the county. Um, so again, that science, now we're finally having the maps, the data coming out, which everyone's interested in and is really going to spark this conversation, I think. And, and I think it will uh, be a much more visible and higher priority for the city and certainly for our program going forward. Yeah, I'm glad you... I was just going to ask you a question about Ross Clark because probably a lot of people listening think, hey, I thought Ross Clark was our climate action yes. coordinator. You succeeded him about, what, half a year ago Six or months something? ago, yes. Yeah. So Ross yeah. Clark was the city's first climate action coordinator. Incidentally, this role, this is the only staffer that is purely... 
focused on climate change issues in the entire county, believe it or not. Only government uh, <laughs> staffer. But yeah, Ross Clark is now, um, he, his position was half time with the city. Now I'm at 75% time. His other half time, he had been doing um, wetlands restoration, coastal restoration, and uh, adaptation modeling. And so that's what he's doing now full time. More and, hands on out in nature yeah, where he wants yeah. to be anyway. Yeah. You know, you probably have met your counterparts. I mean, here's the thing that's more relevant to non-coastal towns. Uh, other towns could have climate action coordinators or something, you know, sustainability or green yep. this or that. You probably have met a lot of these people. They, you probably have conferences or something here yeah. and there. Oh, yeah, we absolutely do. Um, you know, here locally, m mostly it's planners that have a bit of their time that are allocated towards climate action, climate mitigation, and climate adaptation. We uh, meet on a regional basis through the Monterey Bay Regional Climate Action Compact. We actually have an intergovernmental subcommittee that I facilitate so that we're sharing best practices. We know what everybody's you know got going on, share resources, that kind of thing, because we know that climate action isn't well-funded, even here in California on the local level. And so really that sharing of knowledge is super important. Um, however, we also uh, interact on the state level um, through uh, the local government commission um, and through, uh, we have also national conferences. Um, so yeah, there, and you know, it's primarily the real big cities that have a climate action coordinator. It's, so we're really lucky here in Santa Cruz, really fortunate. That's yeah. wonderful. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Tiffany Wise West. She is the climate action coordinator for the city of Santa Cruz, a coastal city right next to the ocean, <laughs> as most coastal cities are. And she has the very difficult and, and important job of helping the city adapt or mitigate or plan for the inevitability of various climate impacts from global warming. And we're very glad uh, that you could make it in today. Thank you so much the, for being the here. I guess we're just going to have to... I wanted to get us to talk about energy you know solar and efficient energy but we're just going to have to have you back that's and of course great. you'll have more to tell us oh oh there is one more question for you from out in <laughs> radio land it's apparent okay okay uh let's see uh this is uh yeah this is uh jerry uh it's apparent to many of us that the Lockwifer plan which is a word that means like lock lomond where we have our major storage reservoir for water and aquifers, where we can recharge the aquifers, is the city's most climate-friendly water source alternative for reasons outlined below. I guess there's a whole lot of information below. What does Tiffany Wise West have to say about each of the points below? Uh, well, we you know, this is gonna, you know that, what, uh, Jerry, you're, you're going to yeah. need to um, email uh, Tiffany uh, at the info she gave out earlier, or if you didn't get that, well, I can get it to you, and you probably have it anyway. Uh, do you happen to know this person or have you heard the... No, I... Oh, I well, that's good. Uh, I, it'll be new unexplored territory. Yeah, sounds good. And if I don't know the answer to, to those points, I'll certainly find uh -huh. the, the people that will. Yeah, well, I know something about it and uh, so we can talk about it. <laughs> talk but another anyway. time. Yeah. Big, great big issue. Maybe we'll get Jerry on here sometime. Yeah. He can tell us all about yeah. his yeah. idea. And yeah, but I'd love question. to talk energy someday. Most definitely. Energy. We have some, some great plans at the city. So. Yeah, I, well, I talked with Tiffany about a hour on the phone before this show to kind of get ready for the show so i got my head full of that stuff <laughs> and tiffany's great she came in and talked in my cabrillo college renewable energy class and by the way i that accent you're either from wisconsin <laughs> or illinois or ohio you got it ohio ohio North, northwestern oh, ohio that's where i went to well i went to college in northern northeast uh, oberlin college oh, right yeah. right near cleveland yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it's and funny i so. can't quite uh, kick it i've been gone from there about 20 years but i get Every day someone asks me. should be a badge of pride. You don't need a California accent. And, yeah. and this is a good way to say shout out to our listeners in Columbus, in Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Which we do have. Yeah, so absolutely. Buckeyes, yeah. right? Great. The Green yeah, Radio right. Network. The Green Radio Network yeah. they have yeah. there. Yeah. So awesome. thank you for being here, and we appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thank you. And you're welcome to stick around and uh, you know watch or participate <laughs> in the remaining oddball stuff and general banter about <laughs> the universe. Sounds good. <laughs> thank you both. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tiffany. And people can keep emailing us, too. You know, uh, maybe you got a puzzler for us or an answer to a, a riddle or something. That, uh, but, you know, I have to say something in honor of uh, the recently departed April Fool's Day. I mean, it's <laughs> uh -oh. still, as far as I'm concerned, it's time for some tomfoolery. And I realized, well, what about 
Tom, Dick, and Harry foolery or Jill, Jane, and Sally foolery? Why, why is it Tom? I mean, Tommy, maybe he could say, why is it Tom foolery? But anyway. Um, it's well, after me. Is that know. a science question? <laughs> well, it's a culture, culture question. Well, I'm, I'm warming up. I'm revving up for the best, one of the best April Fool's pranks I ever saw actually relates to a great science thing that's happening right now. But first, I'll tell you the prank. Um, somebody got a whole company full of people to go out at you know 11 o'clock in the morning into the parking lot of their company and stare up at the sky in broad daylight this was a few years ago through he supplied them all with green glass you know soft drink bottles and they were to look through the bottom of the bottle with the opening that you drink through pointed towards the sky at a certain direction that he pointed out and they were all looking for planet Lerpa 1, L-I-R-P-A, the numeral 1, comet Lerpa 1. And this was done on April Fool's Day, by the way. What do you think Lerpa, L-I-R-P-A, backwards spells? L-I-R-P-A. April 1. It was <laughs> Comet April Fool's backwards in the middle of the daytime through green Coke bottles or whatever. Well, anyway, so this relates to reality. There is a green comet flying over the North Pole right now. And this is no joke. I mean, this, well, it's, it's great. It's not a joke, but it's great. <laughs> and with binoculars, you can see the green comet. You're not going to see that it's green. I mean, in telescopes and photographs that, you know, accumulate some light over some time, you can see a, a greenish tint to the ionization and dust trails of this comet. And um, so, let's see, I don't remember the name of the comet. Everybody just calls it, it's named after some, you know, long, probably Russian name or something. But you, you look uh, at, uh, get, a, get a map on the web and find out where to look. I think it's kind of near, somewhere in the dip, the big and little dippers in the North Star area uh, the next few nights. Wow. And speaking of the next few nights, here's something else that's going to be fleeting. The planet Mercury. You rarely ever see the planet Mercury. It's the innermost one. It has an 88-day orbit around the sun, so it kind of darts in and out. It's having its best evening appearance of the year right now. In fact, all last week, it was, it was as good as it gets. And this week, it's, it's still good, although fading. So get out there, uh, you know, half hour, 45 minutes after sunset, when it's get this beautiful blue frosty twilight, you'll see a, a star-like thing out there where nothing else is. <laughs> That'll be Mercury. And in a week, it'll be gone. <laughs> it'll be getting fainter and fainter every night. Uh, and then, you know, it goes back uh, around the sun. And uh, then it'll pop out as a so-called morning star. Uh, <laughs> and it'll be really well visible in the early morning. But you have to get up, you know, dawn, <laughs> dawn patrol for that. So... Uh, so anyway, that's uh, something to keep your eye on. But um, what else does anybody have for us here? I have a few things written down. Well, we've got to talk about the eclipse. One of these days, we've got to talk about the eclipse this summer. I think we're going to talk about it right now. Now, I heard that there are certain <laughs> places within driving distance of where we are, but they could be all across the country, that you can see a full solar eclipse in full totality. And one thing I heard is you don't want to be where it's foggy. <laughs> Besides that, you have to be above a certain latitude. So one of the nearest to us is somewhere around Bend, Oregon. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of near. It's hundreds of miles. <laughs> uh, near but, as it comes, right? Yeah. As near I as mean, you can get, driving. The good news is that this is the first total eclipse of the sun to go, you know, coast to coast or even anywhere in the continental United States in many, many years. Uh, uh, and um, I sort of have this odd thought that gosh if everybody so so everybody in the whole country will be within hundreds of miles you can go and see this thing <laughs> and everybody should get inside the path of a totality but i have to say by everybody i mean including the burglars and thieves and vandals who are going to mess <laughs> with your stuff while, while, while everybody else is gone into the path of totality no they have to go in there too and be totally inspired by the wonders of the universe <laughs> I, I love mean, your faith that the entire country is so interested in this and i love <laughs> i i want it to be true actually that everyone will leave their home and go to this narrow band across the country to collectively view you know the place. only reason why they wouldn't is because they don't know what How they're missing and that's what i still have to sell you on let me just give you a sneak preview okay i mean look uh, people say oh i've seen a total eclipse 
Well, yeah, it was total somewhere else, but you saw it partial here. And if even 99% of the sun is covered and 1%, a little star's worth of sun is still shining, that destroys the whole thing. I mean, you get some really cool effects and interesting weird shadows and things, but you don't see what you see in totality, which is the stars, the planets, a 360-degree sunset glow all the way around the horizon, and this frosted black silhouette of the moon in front of this ethereal pearly ghostly glow of the atmosphere the corona of the sun the atmosphere of the sun you never see it at any other time well that sounds exciting i mean the 360 degree um <laughs> sunset, sunset glow. glow is going to be worth it if you're in a desert area you'll see it oh, better yeah. right instead and of mountains this is such an awesome phenomenon i mean people there was some king of bavaria or something long long ago who literally got scared to death by just the awesomeness of the total eclipse. Can you document that? Is that an urban Yeah, it was, in, uh, it was in the Washington Post a long, 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 long time ago when I was a kid. <laughs> look it I up, read that. Look it up. <laughs> so can you, can you look at that with a naked eye? Oh, you have to when it's total. Okay. You know, I shudder to think, okay, hopefully the whole world hears me now. I've heard people say, no, they say it's especially dangerous when it's total. Do not look at it when it's total. No, 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 no. <laughs> when it's total, you have to look at it. You are missing one of the wonders of the universe. <laughs> the, but the reason why, in general, a total eclipse attracts more people to be looking at the sun you know, during the time the whole thing is happening, including the partial phases. So, yeah, you get more eye injuries because people looked at it when it was partially, when it yep. was covered. But right. when it's totally covered, it's a crime against the universe not to be looking at it. <laughs> it will arrest you. But you do need a filter to look at it before it's When total. it's partial, yeah. Because you could burn your And everybody right in Santa Cruz who's not under the fog, yeah, you're going to need filters. And Or my favorite way to do it, actually, is take a mirror and reflect the partially eclipsed sun on a wall, like on a white wall, and you'll get this Cheshire Cat grin. Yeah, you can you do know, it with shadows, too. You can also do this thing where you build a box and you make a pinhole yeah. or you make square with your fingers and you get little shadows that are crescent-shaped. And it's deeper and deeper eclipse. The crescent gets narrower and narrower. But the funnest way to do it is to take a little square mirror and <laughs> reflect it on a faraway wall. And people say, where, where's that coming from? Where's that coming from? Nobody can tell who's reflecting it on the wall. <laughs> but, but you can do that. you got to be doing this when you're, seeing, when you're in the totality because you can do that, too, there as well as catch the totality. But it won't get entirely entirely dark. It's just going to look like twilight, right? Well, it depends partly on the state of the atmosphere. I, I saw a seven and a half minute eclipse, which is as long as they get these days off the uh, coast of Mauritania in Africa back in 1973. And the Sahel, you may remember the Sahel region of Africa had major uh, dust storms and droughts and there were famines. Uh, this was in 1973. And the sky actually looked kind of greenish because of the weird effect of the dust, uh, optical effects. Mm. I mean, it was a dark, dim grayish green. <laughs> but another one I saw up on top of Mount, uh, first one when I was a kid, 1963, up on Mount Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park in Maine. There it got like night. Uh, mm. And you, you could see stars and planets and uh, it was just awesome up there. <laughs> I had also but, heard another historic reference to Eclipse that um, Columbus and his crew got cornered at one point by some unhappy local people. And mm. he said, you know, you have to let me go or the gods will be mad. And he had predicted correctly that there was going to be an eclipse. And he said, it's going to get dark in the day if you don't let me go. Is that right? That well, I'm you know, it, I may be mixing up, but maybe it was Sir Captain John Smith. As a Virginian, we learned these things. You know, Pocahontas, he had something going on with Pocahontas, I think. Uh, anyway... <laughs> He predicted a lunar, a total lunar eclipse, and got off getting his head cut off or whatever they do to... But eventually they said, that old trick, we've heard of that from Columbus and Johnson. Well, the We're eclipses not going are that. too far and few between for them to catch on that quickly. You never know. But, uh, but yeah, maybe Columbus did a solar eclipse. Uh, but anyway, a total solar eclipse, I tell people that, look, it's... if. It doesn't happen in other places because the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun and 400 times closer than the sun. Those two things cancel out so it just fits in front of the sun and you get these marvelous phenomena that probably are not duplicated in many other places in the whole galaxy. So I tell people, if aliens are coming here, it's to see our eclipses. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is really worth going. And it's August 21st, in case you're wondering. We haven't said that yet. It's August 21st. It's going to be a morning event. Make sure you're inside the path of totality the night before. Even if you have to get permission from some 
farmer to camp in his field. Because <laughs> otherwise, if you're in Bend, 60 miles south of the path of totality the night before, in a nice bed and breakfast, or if you can even find anything, they're all sold out already, um, <laughs> you're going to get caught in a traffic jam on the two-lane country road between there and the path of totality the next morning. I hate to think how many people are, A, going to miss the eclipse due to traffic jams. And, well, I mean, they'll see a deep partial eclipse, but they won't see the wonders that they went there, though. And that, that I also shudder to think how many people don't even look at it. They, they look away from it because they think that a total eclipse is especially dangerous. O only the partial parts of a total eclipse. You know, we have a couple more minutes. So if you want to slide a question in, uh, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You can write to us real quick, and you can also write to us for next time because Joe could answer your questions, ponder the answer, and bring it back to you next week. <laughs> um, we just have a few more minutes, so I think we're going to wrap up with some other phenomenon or at least uh, quizzes yeah. for your brain to puzzle over the next week. And did we have one we were challenging them with last time or not? You know, I forgot to listen back over things and find <laughs> out what, where we just are with that. You people who faked the quiz. But, uh, but I have a fun fact for people, you know, we didn't quite get to talk with uh, our guest Tiffany here about um, energy much, but electricity, uh, a kilowatt hour. I mean, people associate that with electricity because that's what you pay for in your utility bill. Uh, it's actually a unit of energy. I mean, you can actually have a kilowatt hour of thermal energy. It's just that it's they usually use other units traditionally. I like the water analogy. It's like a gallon of water. That uh, a kilowatt, a kilowatt hour. hour uh, what with a gallon of water? Just it's a similar unit. Oh, so, oh, okay. Just sort of tradition, you mean? Right. Yeah. And yeah, if yeah. you think about kilowatts, that's kind of like flow. Okay. Right? Okay. Uh -huh. Just so because sometimes people have a hard time thinking about electricity getting right, their right. their brain They're good water analogies. Yeah. Well, a kilowatt hour, which is different from a kilowatt, by the way. A kilowatt yes. is a rate of energy. It's, exactly. it's what's called power. But a kilowatt hour is the amount of energy. Now, how much do you pay for a kilowatt hour? I mean, you know, 20 cents, a dime, 34 cents maybe during the deer time when, in the afternoon when PG&E needs, uh, you know, to g generate power for air conditioners in the Central Valley. So you pay more in the, its time of use. Well, anyway, you pay a few dimes at most for a kilowatt hour. That's the amount of energy it takes to raise a 100-pound backpack from sea level to the top of Mount Everest. One lousy kilowatt hour. Now, okay, I can leave that as a quiz for uh, my former students, for instance, who know uh, the formulas for potential energy. You're increasing <laughs> the potential energy of that backpack by lifting it from sea level to the top of Mount Everest. When you drop it, it's going to hit the ground with that same. It's going to be kinetic energy, and it, it's enormous. And, hey, we pay a couple of dimes for one kilowatt hour. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. That's and if we amazing. all had to generate the kind of power that <laughs> fossil fuels and solar generate for us just with human energy, there's nothing nothing oh, that we're doing could one really last thing, be done. About, sorry, about the sun. There's a huge sunspot on the sun right now. Go to spaceweather.com. I think every day they have a uh, an image of the sun, and it's rotating across the surface. sun takes about 30 days to rotate, so from day to day you can actually see it progress. It's way bigger than the Earth. <laughs> and how do you see it? Take a pair of binoculars. Don't look through them, but project the image onto a piece of paper in front of you, and you will. <laughs> anyway, there you go. There you go. You've been listening to Planet Watch, and we thank you for tuning in. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. I'm Tommy Martin. <laughs> and there's Tiffany. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned.